Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 324th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Nancy Naus. Nancy is the CEO and founder of Benchmark Wealth Management, an RIA affiliated with LPL Financial based in Memphis, Tennessee, that oversees nearly $340 million in assets under management for almost 1,000 client households. What's unique about Nancy, though, is how after reaching a moment of business crisis during the market volatility in the 2008-2009 financial crisis, the market decline and associated decline in her AUM fees led to a cash flow squeeze and resulted in Nancy having to ask her assistant and best friend for a loan just to make payroll for her staff, which fortunately led to substantive changes in how Nancy now manages the profit margins of the firm, allowing her to scale the business up to more than 20 team members and not have any cash flow business problems during the pandemic. In this episode, we talk in depth about how during the Great Recession, Nancy, like many other advisory firm owners at the time, were facing the challenges of 30 to 40% market drop and its subsequent effect on firm revenue. But because she took for granted that she was a CFP professional with a good income and didn't need to monitor it that closely until the month she discovered she was $5,000 short and stopped payroll obligations. How after struggling with her firms and her own personal finances, Nancy asked her business partner for help, and he suggested she read Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover, which helped her transform her own money habits, pay off accumulated debt over seven years, and inspired her to join the SmartVestor program and even use the book to help her clients engage more deeply about their money habits and savings. And then how Nancy was able to leverage Ramsey's SmartVestor lead generation program to grow her firm to five referrals per week, of which almost half became clients, and over a couple of years gained more than 100 new clients per year. We also talk about how Nancy and a few other advisors from her previous firm decided to follow one of their well-respected advisor colleagues to start an independent firm with LPL, but it wasn't until later that she suddenly realized that she had now become not just an advisor, but an advisory firm business owner as an independent, but that becoming a business owner also meant she had an opportunity to manage the business and treat employees the way that she felt was best and steer away from some negative experiences at a previous employer. How as her firm has grown, Nancy has begun stepping away from client-facing duties and transitioning her clients to another advisor in the firm so that she can focus more on becoming the firm's visionary and leading it forward to the next stage of growth. And how Nancy realized through trial and error the importance of having employees that are not like her and the need to find the types of employees that complement her strengths and weaknesses, which has led her to using personality tests like Patrick Lencioni's new Working Genius program and developing a four to eight week hiring process that includes several meetings with team members and even a group dinner comprising of the candidate and their spouse, along with members of the firm and their own spouses to really ensure a good fit with the firm. And be certain to listen to the end, where Nancy shares how she coped with failing her Series 7 exam five times in the span of a year before she realized that she may have a learning disability. And then after consulting with the doctor and finding the right medication that helped her improve focus, years later, she got the highest grade in her class on the Series 24 exam. How Nancy spent the better part of 30 years of her career feeling inadequate about her ability as an advisor because she feared she wasn't as technical or analytical as others, but through support of friends and colleagues realized that she can have great confidence in her success that she's created through her strength in relating directly to clients themselves. 
and why Nancy has recently become a certified dream manager to develop her team and inspire them to go beyond traditional goal setting as Nancy feels dreams have a deeper financial planning meaning than mere goals and hopes one day to translate the training into workshops for clients so that they can create better connections with their dreams and as a result, achieve more of their financial objectives. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Nancy Naus. Welcome, Nancy Naus, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's it's a treat to be here. I just respect and admire the heck out of you, so I'm looking forward to doing this. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And 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 your willingness to join join on the episode today and and talk a little about the just like the the evolution of the advisory business and kind of the the ups and downs we start hitting when it when it grows beyond us and we start adding you know multiple team members and and just get that phenomenon that other businesses have but advisory firms don't have for a long time where you get enough employees that like making payroll be, becomes a thing like i i got to make sure there's enough cash coming in to be able to cover my staff expenses uh going out the door plus whatever my personal expenses are because we we live off the net of our advisory firms. And, you know, it's one of those things that just, it kind of sneaks up, I find, on a lot of advisory firms because the early years, it's usually just us and every new dollar of revenue you get just drops straight to the bottom line. So the, right. usually the first few hundred thousand dollars of revenue, is like just the more dollars you grow at the top line, the more you get on the bottom line. But then you hit this crossover where you have to start adding people. You start have to adding staff to be able to support an ever larger revenue base. And the good news is, you know, you can you can grow a larger business and ultimately generate more more income and profits from a larger enterprise. But the challenge is, you know, they all they all have salaries and expect to get paid <laughs> on an ongoing basis, right. regardless of what's going on in the business. Like profitability is your problem, salaries. What I expect from you is as, as mm-hmm. the as the employee, and when you start layering on, you know, those pesky things like market volatility into the into the mix, you can get to the point where these numbers don't sync up very well anymore. At at, at best, you know, big market pullbacks can really crush profits down to almost nothing. At, at worst, it not only crushes profits, but it even eliminates your your ability to fully make payroll. Mm-hmm. And and I find just it's it's not something we talk about much in the advisory business, like how we handle that kind of operational leverage of the business. But I know you have you have lived some versions of this and the bumpiness of going through this, particularly in the financial crisis. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm looking forward today to talking a little bit about the, just that, that practical real world reality of how you have to start managing the business differently, like as, as a business business, once it right. grows to a certain point. Yeah. Yeah, you have to, I think your description is apt that we start as advisors and eventually we become business owners. And that's sobering when you realize, wait, I just wanted to be an advisor, you know, and now I'm responsible for others. So it, it's, a, it's a whole new world, that's for sure. Yeah, and it, it really is to be sort of an, an interesting effect that it sneaks up on you because just, I know so many other businesses, for better or worse, like if you decide to start a a small business in most industries, like you're starting a business business out of the gate. Like you have to start hiring some people out of the gate and, and just to be able to, you know, put up your storefront and uh, staff the cash register and right. stock the shelves and those kinds mm-hmm. of businesses. And advisory firms are unique because so much of this comes from our 
our personal knowledge and our personal labor and and kind of getting dollars for our time and our efforts that the point where you where where it becomes like a businessy business where you're responsible for others like it might not come until three five seven ten plus years into the career sometimes further out than that and so we can we can go a really long time not needing to deal with that until eventually you accumulate enough clients that you do and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not playing the same game that I was originally. Mm-hmm. Like this changed at some point on me. Right. Yeah. There's a new hat to wear. Exactly. So I want to spend some time talking about how that that evolution happened in your in your advisory firm. But I think to get us started, help us understand just the advisory firm as it exists today and where you are now. And then we'll talk a little bit about the, okay. the journey of coming here. Well, we have uh, 23 of us, if you count my pit bull, because she is our chief rollover specialist and is on the website and is an absolute scream. Uh, But there are 22 of us, um, five advisors uh, will be seven by 2024 or before. Uh, Each of those advisors has a pair planner, and then we have a couple of business development people and everybody else's um, support and administrative. And, you know, given the size of the practice, um, many people think, and just to give you an idea, we have about 340 million assets under management, and we have about 1,000 clients. So when some people look at the practice, they're like, wow, that, you know, you're you're helping everybody. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Um, I was say like that. That is a lot of clients. It is. It is a lot of clients. And I, I think what I've discovered, Michael, is um, one, and when, as we get into my story, you'll understand why. One, I'm, I'm willing to help anybody that needs help because there was a time when I was super stupid with money and I was a CFP at the time. And I just I feel compelled to help folks that need help. And that means a, a kid getting started that needs a Roth IRA for 100 bucks a month. Um, but it also means any number of women who still don't understand uh, how to how to do any of the investment and that kind of thing. And what it's afforded me the opportunity to do is because we'll help anybody, there are an awful lot of folks that come to us that are pretty simple. They're not complicated. And uh, I can handle the complicated people as can my senior advisors, but some of the younger advisors can cut their teeth on folks that are just getting started. And I am a financial advisor and I am a business owner, but I think what I've discovered I really love doing is developing people. And that's really what we're doing here. And that's one of the reasons we have uh, 22 people and one dog, because I, I feel there, there are a couple of the gals that we've hired in the last couple of years who have been in horrific and I think abusive work situations. And, you know, we've brought them in and we've shown them a different culture and they're just flourishing. And I just love that. I just mm-hmm. love it. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting a lot of um, satisfaction in doing that and building a team uh, in developing a culture. It's just a lot of fun to me. So help us understand a little bit more of this structure. You said five advisors. Each advisor has a, a, a paraplanner person supporting them. So I guess I'm just envisioning that means like this series of five two-person advisor teams that each have divvied up this roughly thousand clients that they're working with. Is that mm-hmm. a, a good representation? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and are you one of the five? Are you still keeping a, a client base directly at this point or have you transitioned to that? 
I am uh, keeping some clients, but we are in the midst of transitioning those. And, and we think the wrong way to do it is to send a client a letter that says, here's the name of your new advisor. And the right way to do it is as clients come in and we know that we're going to transition them, I meet with them and their new advisor and I explain that my role is changing. And at some point, I may want to retire. That's actually doubtful. I think I'll be here until I'm 100. But um you know, and just and just talk to them about it and just say, you know, this is something that we think is important for you. I have handpicked this advisor for you. I have trained this advisor and I am always here. I, I am here to to help if you need it, et cetera. But in a perfect world, I'd get down to, you know, 25 clients. I probably have 100 right now. So we are in the midst of transitioning. And and so how are that's I'm just wondering, like, how are those conversations going? I mean, I just, I know for a lot of us, if we've done this for a long time, we've had these clients for a long time, like these, these feel like really challenging conversations to go to someone that you might've been with for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years mm-hmm. to have to have this conversation. Yeah, I think I, I, it can be. Um, what has happened is I do a fair amount of speaking and traveling and that sort of thing. And so there are a lot of times I'm just simply not available. And if an advisor is needed, and we already know that, for example, Shannon is going to be the one that we transition somebody to, then Shannon is the one who helps them when I'm out of town. So they already have begun a loose relationship with Shannon, and uh, she's helped them and gone you know, to the to the extreme to get whatever they want and help them with whatever need they have. So it's not like they don't know her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we do sit down, we just did this with a client uh, this week. I still, all of the clients are under my rep ID. And so all we're doing is adding an advisor to their accounts. So when they get their statement or pull up the internet, they're still seeing my name. And and that seems to ease a lot of folks. Uh, and all the advisors know that if I need to sit in an appointment with a client that's coming in and is not transitioning easily, I'll do that in a heartbeat. That's fine. I mean, you know, so you're right. Some of these clients have been clients for 30 years. And while they might not be an A client anymore, they were at one time and I wouldn't be here without them. So we need to do it uh, very well and consider their perspective. And there's one who said, no. Either I stay with you or I go. I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, you'll, I'll, I'll keep you. It's all good. Uh, so, you know, I just think it, it has to be done, like you said, carefully and with consideration, but I think it can be done. And so how many have you transitioned to get to one that said no? Um, it was, we probably had transitioned about 50 before this okay. gal said, uh, nope, I'm not moving. Um, and since that time, we, we haven't had any issues with anybody else. I mean, issues meaning there are a few appointments that I'm still sitting in on occasion or, um, you know, one of my advisors may say, hey, these people are coming in. Can you stick your head in and speak to them? Um, and and that's been that's been an easy thing. One of the biggest issues we just ran into is uh, we had an advisor leave us um, it was a big surprise in December. And of his 120 clients, I'd probably given him 70. So I felt like I needed to call all 70 of those people and just say, hey, uh, this guy resigned. Uh, it was unexpected. I want you to know we're still going to take care of you, you know, that kind of thing. And um, I, I am 
working with the other advisors here to figure out who you're going to fit with best. Uh, do you have any questions, et cetera? And, and we transitioned all 120 uh, minus two. Uh, one of them left us and one of them we fired. So I, I feel really good about about that. Now, you know, there still could be some fallout in a couple of months, but uh, so far, so good. Well, I think that's notable because the, right, the fear, I think, for a lot of us when we think about that realm where we're, where we're hiring on new advisors and transitioning clients to them is like, I don't, I don't want to have to have gone through all the work to build up the build up that client base and bring them in and connect them to the to to me and the firm and transition them. And then have someone leave and have the clients go with them. And, right. you know, basically, like, I, I, I trained I trained my advisors to go out there. I trained my clients to go out the door with the advisor who doesn't stay. Mm-hmm. So, like, what what was going on that you didn't have to deal with a lot of client attrition around this? Well, we, I mean, we asked the advisors to all sign non-competes, and okay. uh, that helped a lot. And, you know, there were, there were uh, at least one client that I can remember who – wanted to talk to me specifically because he wanted the uh, more transparent version of why this young man left. In other words, did he abscond with money and you had to fire him, which is mm-hmm. something I would have never thought, but I guess everybody's watching Madoff on Netflix these days and um, there's panic. So, uh, you know, and just explaining that to them. Um, but I, I think we had more than five people say, we're doing business with you because of your team and your culture. Mm. So that was very affirming uh, to what we're trying to do here and what we've built. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just makes you feel really good that anybody would yeah. even uh, count for that. So is the, I, at least when the transitions are going well, as you're, as you're winnowing down your client base over time, do you have a vision of just how long it takes to do these transitions? Like, you know, is it way we're sitting down at one meeting and like, this will be my last meeting with you. I'll be in the office if you really want to come in, but ideally like this is the transition meeting and this is it. Or do you do like a, a multi month or multi year process of like, we'll be in together for a year and then I'll be in sometimes for a year. And then like by year three, I'll be out of the meetings. Uh, how, how long do you take to do these transitions or, or yeah, what most, are you of them, most of them are one and done. Um, I mean, I, I explained to them that my role is changing and I'm the visionary for the firm and we are growing thanks to them and that the day-to-day operation of being an advisor is not something that I'm I'm doing that much of. And so this this advisor will be your point of contact going forward. Now, when when they're doing your plan, if they have questions, I'm meeting with them uh periodically to go over anything that they need to talk about. So it's not like I'm not here. I am here. Uh, but really, it's you're going to get so much better service and so much better responsiveness by working with this individual than you will from me. And, you know, honestly, Michael, I think at some point, I, I, I just realized that I'm the joy of being a, an advisor and working with these people until one of us dies. I, I'm just not feeling it. And so I don't want to be uh, halfway with anybody. Now, I still love bringing in new business, but just like we talked about before, I, I'm, a, I'm a great starter. I'm a very poor finisher. And, and what I've found is that I, I need the challenge of bringing new business in and then passing those people to another advisor. 
So uh, is it is it hard in the moment to say you're going to get better service and responsiveness from this other advisor? I mean, you're kind of throwing yourself under the bus at that point. Well, no, because I mean, I, I really, I'm, I'm, you're going to find as we go on, I'm completely transparent with these people and you and anybody else that wants to listen um, that you know, I, I think I'm still the, well, I know I'm by far the most experienced person here. And I have a, an idea of everything that, that they need to do and what goes on and that kind of stuff. But, um, I, you know, now that I think about it, I'm not sure that I've ever said you're going to get better service. Um, but you're, you're gonna, you know, it, this is the person that you can move forward with. And the other part about it is all the advisors that are here are younger than I am. And, you know, I think that's important, too, because I want clients to have someone they can finish with. Uh, and I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. But if I did, you know, then we've got a real issue on our hands. I'm perfectly healthy, by the way. Is there some point where you envision this has gone so far that you, you literally transition the rep IDs as well? Like just you're completely off the accounts? I don't see that. Um, okay. And our broker dealer is LPL, and in talking with them, they've encouraged me to to never do that. Okay. Um, I guess it's a possibility at some point, but I think it's important that uh, I built the company, I own the clients, um, and you know that's that's kind of the end of that. Oh, so I guess that that ties to the nature of having employment agreements as well. Like these are advisors who are servicing clients under your rep ID, which is you know, p- part of how you can manage to just that dynamic of who's allowed to continue with the client relationship if the advisor parts ways with the firm. Yeah, exactly. And and we have joint rep IDs, but we figure out the there there is no commission that goes under most of them. Everything comes into me and then we uh, pay it out based on their, their cut. Um, so, uh, you know, I can see, um, changing some of that, like my business partner and I have a special rep ID and we're 50-50. And I can see doing that with some of the other advisors as they become senior and potentially partners. Uh, But as far as ever giving away everything, I can't really see that until I'm not here. And then you said you've got a a support admin team around this. So how is that structured? Like, are uh, Are they tied to these clusters of five teams as well where there's an, an administrative person for each team or is it more centralized how do you how do you manage the uh, the administrative support structure yeah the um, there are two administrative folks that do all the paperwork and uh, handle everything once the pair planners hand it off to them so there are two of them uh, there's one gal who is the I'll call her the relationship enhancer. She's the one out front that meets and greets. And then there are two guys that do our research and all of our training. Um, There are also two young men who are currently training to be advisors, um, testing and whatnot. Um, So that's kind of how we divvy things up. So what kind of research, like investment research, financial planning research? Yeah, mostly investment research. Okay. And and then you said you have some folks in the business development side as well. So mm-hmm. what are, what are those roles? Um, those folks do our website and all of our social media, and then get get us me opportunities to speak, um, pick and choose some of the events that we should attend. Um, look at our book and determine if uh, there's 
something else we need to do with some of the clients that we have and make suggestions there. Uh, so that's that's something we tried about a year and a half ago, and it's I think it's really paid off. Um, they do other things too, like one of them just updated our entire contact system. So they're everybody here wears uh, a number of, of hats. And one of the other gals that there are two gals that are doing business development. And uh, the youngest of those is really our techno wizard, mainly because she's under 25. Uh, so she, for example, was on call just in case I couldn't get on the call with you today. She was uh-huh. sitting outside just in case the codger can't figure it out. But I did. So it's all good. Interesting. So business development in this context, like you're not hiring folks who, you know, go out in the community directly and try to solicit new clients and bring them to the firm. Like these are more internally like marketing support roles within the firm that support you and your business development op- uh, yes. opportunities and efforts that going yeah. on. Yeah. So, okay. So I understand the sort of the, the overall staff structure and environment and 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 what's built so so now take us back to the the beginning how how did you get started in the industry that ultimately led and grew and compounded to this 22 plus dog person business (laughs) um i went to college and got really wanted to major in social work and my father said something like over my dead body so i ended up majoring in advertising. And when I graduated, got to work at a bank in their marketing department for a couple of years. And um, somebody referred me to what they called their financial planner. And the guy called and we interviewed and uh, I ended up going to work for him, I think, because at that point I was uh, 24 and no offense to any young listeners, but when you're 24, you're just a putz, or I certainly was. And I think I had dollar signs in my eyes. And, you know, he said, oh, you can make $100,000 a year. So, um, which was a lot of money then. I mean, that's a good <laughs> amount of money now, but like that was a, that was was a lot a, of money. Yeah, then. boatload then. Um, and really what he owned, Michael, was an insurance agency. Then they dabbled in financial planning. So I didn't really recognize it there. I didn't understand what a draw was, but I was about to be sobered by that. And in asking my parents um, what they thought of it, they both discouraged it. My dad was in residential real estate and he said, you know, you're going to be selling intangibles and that's tough. Uh, and mom just kind of thought the guy that owned the firm was a little creepy. Turns out she was right. But um, so, I, you know, I go to work and I, I'm not really a feminist, um, but I, this is uh, 1985 and I'm in an all male firm and I'm 24 and um, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, in college, I was the kid that was getting a cash advance on MasterCard to pay off American Express. I was just total idiot. Um, and, you know, I'm not stupid, but I just never really paid attention, never knew how to do a budget, which will come back uh, in my story. But um, so I got started and you can imagine there's just not a ton of single women who are 24 who need uh-huh. cash value life insurance. So I was not particularly successful. Uh, first, before I did any of that, of course, I had to take the life insurance exam, which um, I failed the first time and just chalked that up to nerves and then, you know, studied a little harder and passed it the second time. 
Um, but, you know, also in there, they were doing some mutual funds, and so they required uh, Series 7. Okay. And so I studied, um, you know, in quotations, I studied, and at that point, back in the day, you couldn't test on a computer. You couldn't test in Memphis. You had to drive to Little Rock or Atlanta to take the exams. And so I studied, drove to Little Rock, uh, took the six-hour exam, drove back, and then you had to wait six weeks for your results. And your, um, in this case, GA general agent got the results, and he had to tell me that I failed the first time. I mean, I was close. I think I got a 40 that first time. Um, so this went on for probably a year. I took the Series 7 five times before I passed it. And, and each time I just got lower and lower and lower and felt like, you know, I already felt like there was a highlighter on my face because I was the only woman. And now, you know, there are murmurings of, is she smart enough? Mm-hmm. And um, I felt I felt called to the profession. I had, I'm a woman of faith. I had prayed about it. I felt like this was something God wanted me to do. But not only am I failing these tests left and right, I am not making a nickel. Uh, and, you know, actually, uh, it, you know how a draw works. Uh, there was a time when paychecks are being uh, passed out and my paycheck was, you owe the house $300. I mean, people at my church were leaving groceries on my doorstep. It was it was really pathetic. But anyway, um, eventually, somehow, uh, we'll just say by God's grace, I was able to pass the Series 7, um, never really realizing that I think I have a learning disability. I don't think I'm particularly good at standardized tests. Uh, In college, I always got away on personality and presentations and, you know, uh, writing, that sort of thing. So uh, time goes on, and and I stayed at that firm for uh, 15 years. And Oh, wow. So this this ultimately worked out. I guess you got... You got the sales end going eventually? Yeah, I'd say eventually. uh, Everything was really slow. And as is uh, obviously my history, there were a number of do-overs, but also that firm got a lot more into financial planning. And and I found that I really enjoyed that. And I was good at selling securities where I might not be so good uh, at selling insurance. And um, one day, the the advisor that I respected the most in the firm came into my office um, and said, uh, I'm leaving. Something that I heard recently, people talked about, um, you know, as an advisor, you can get into that um, kind of a depressive funk. uh, And I was in that. uh, And I thought it was because my dad had died about a year before. And as I really looked uh, a little bit more deeply, I realized um, maybe it's what I'm doing. And then I realized, no, it's where I'm doing it. So when he said, I'm leaving, and I said, um, hey, how about taking me with you? So there were four of us that left um, there and joined LPL as a group. And um, then one by one, they left to go do something else. And all very amicable. It was just they got out of the business or uh, wanted to do something else. And so, so when I'm, was this? This is like 15 this, years this is two, past yeah, the original firm, so we're in 2000? Yeah, okay. in 2000. Um, so I'm coming back from a conference, and I'm on an airplane, um, and all of a sudden it hits me, crap, I'm a, I'm a business owner. 
I just wanted to be a financial advisor. Now I own a company and I absolutely hate management, hate it. But I was an athlete in high school and college and I thought, you know, I could build a team. I, I can do that. So maybe it's just, you know, vernacular or semantics, but uh, focusing in on team building to me was something that I could do and uh, I could be good at. So that's really what got all of this started. And, and in those 15 years, I learned a lot about how not to manage a business and how not to treat people. So that was, that was worth the 15 years right there. Mean, mean meaning how how you felt from the employee end in that business to reflect like if I'm do this myself here are things I'm not going to do exactly yeah exactly okay so so at the point that you were leaving the original firm and going to the the new one under LPL like are mm-hmm. are you still otherwise a solo at this point is it is it just I mean I guess other advisors you were going along with like did you have a team of your own at this point or no, I had- that came later. I had one assistant and that okay. was it. Yeah. So okay. when the, the guys all left, it's just um, me and one gal and uh, we were doing it by ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, so you make the, so you make the transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what happens at that point? Like, are you just, cause you said you went with some other advisors. Like, are you in a, are you in a partnership at this point or are you on your own or is it kind of the like, siloed structure. We're air quotes partners because we share overhead and office space, but we all have our own practices un- right. under, under it, one common roof. It really was solo. Um, they okay. they all left. Um, and so going back just for a second to the, um, maybe I have a learning disability, that meant that I had to take the principal's exam. And, you know, Mm, so given, now you got to go for a series twenty-four, right? Yeah, remembering um, the horrors of the series seven. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I had a physician client, and I went to him, and I'm like, you know, Jim, I, here's the issue, and I could use some help. And he said, Well, why don't you try Adderall? So he prescribed it, and it was it's like nothing I've ever experienced. I, I could me who is distractible and knows where every squirrel is. I could sit in a chair for eight hours, focus like a laser beam absorb everything that I was reading. It was just miraculous. But when the pill would wear off, I would just hit the skids. I got so depressed. So I I thought, okay, I'm just going to stay on this long enough to take the exam. And um, as things go, I had had to go to Atlanta to take the test. um, And I had the highest grade in the class. So uh, that was just a scream, and, and Adderall was fantastic, but it also had the negative side effects. So I stopped taking that, took the prescription back to him, and thought, i got to figure out a different way to focus. Um, but it was interesting. It was very interesting. So were you – I mean, Adderall classically is prescription for, for ADD, ADHD. Like, mm-hmm. where it was, was that what was going on? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I've never really been tested, um, but it's pretty apparent that, you know, um, something I I can't, it's just challenging. I mean, even preparing for this, I've got notes all over my desk just in case I forget, you know, how many clients we have or something like that. There's just still some things that I can't keep up with it. But I I do, I I overcome a lot of stuff. like I, I couldn't really figure out how to balance a checkbook, so I just got duplicate checks 
And now I can do the subtraction and, you know, just stuff like that. And, you know, it's really interesting, Michael, because I think being a, a woman initially in an all-male firm, and I'm not technical and I, I don't, I'm not analytical. Uh, I'm, I'm relational and I'm habitual and I, I get a lot of, uh, I get by on a lot of personality, but because I wasn't technical or analytical, I've just felt less than most of my career. Like I, I wasn't as good as any of the guys and not because they were guys, but because they were more analytical. And I, I thought, well, that's, that's who I need to be. And it turns out that regardless of what kind of advisor you are, that's who you need to be. You need to be you. Because that's why people are doing business with you. People do business with me not because I can, you know, analyze something, but because I can, um, I can relate. I can be open with them. I, I want to listen to them. I want to build a relationship, and because they trust me, and I ask the right questions, that's why people do business here. And you know, it's it's almost like I woke up about six months ago because uh, all of this is that uh, fresh, and thought, "Yo, sweetheart." You've done all right. You've done all right the way that you've done it. You know, I mean, you've got 20 people working on your team. You make a lot of money. You don't have any debt. I'd say you were all right. You know, but it's it's that 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 thing that we tell ourselves in our head, you know. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask like how long it how long it took you to to get to that point where you were feeling comfortable with it? Like is this literally a, you know, things I've gotten comfortable with over the past 6 to 12 months? phenomenon for you? I, I think it's probably over the past five years. I have some very dear friends who tell me the truth a lot, even when I can't see it. And I think they've had a big influence on me. And, you know, you, you at some point you have to look at the evidence and the evidence is clear. Um, I'm good at this and uh, people trust me and they continue to, and I can build a team and uh, team members trust me. And that's, and it's fun because I do feel strongly that if you're not having fun and you're not making money, why are you doing it? So, um, and this is fun, but it has been a gradual uh, telling yourself the well, truth kind of thing. Well, just I am, I am kind of recognizing like having this realization over the past five years means you finally got comfortable with this shortly after your 30th anniversary in the business. Yeah, exactly. So okay. how do you keep going for the first 30 years before you get to that realization? You know, I, I think it's um, I, I think it's kind of a one day at a time thing. You know, I, I really, I'm supposed to, I am the visionary here and, you know, I can do about one to three year plan. We get into five or 10 and it gets a little bit fuzzier. Um I, I do have an idea of what I want, but I, I want to make today as great as it possibly can. I want to plan out the day. I want to pray about it, and I want to uh, go after it. And and I think it was just kind of one step in front of the other. And it, you know, sometimes I don't think you know that you're not telling yourself the truth. I, I think it's. I don't think I knew it exactly that I'd, I'd felt less than all this time, but that eats at your confidence. And uh, I think that sometimes, even now, I think, well, maybe we could be, you know, bigger or badder if I had more confidence earlier, but it's fine. You know, it, it's fine. And we're, we're where we should be, and we will be where we're supposed to be when we're supposed to be there. 
Well, I was going to ask in that context, like looking back, how do you think this was showing up or impacting you in the in the journey? I think there were opportunities for me to go after bigger clients, and uh, I was intimidated. Um, sometimes making presentations, if I didn't have somebody who was more technical than me, um, I just I wouldn't I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it, um, and sometimes I just wouldn't do it. So I, I think my hiring has been, you know, I think as a business owner initially, because some of us are arrogant, I certainly was. I thought, well, I want to hire somebody just like me. Well, you you've talked to me for a while, you know that more than one of me would be way too much, and. I think, you know, when you realize you want to hire your opposite and you want to hire what you're not, and that's how you build a team that's really strong because then everybody has value and everybody has a place and a seat, et cetera, et cetera. So I think one of the best things I ever did was to hire people that were nothing like me and could really make up for the weaknesses that I had, have. So so you do this transition into... LPL, um, Adderall gets you through the <laughs> Series 24 exam, so we're right. good to go. Uh, so now we're, I guess we're, we're early 2000s and, mm-hmm. and you're on your own with your assistant. Right. So, so what, come, what comes next as the business continues to evolve? Yeah, I think uh, I got into a coaching program around 2000, and uh, that really helped me get a little bit organized and more process-driven, which was helpful. Um, As time went on in this coaching program, they really encouraged setting a minimum and only accepting clients that had, you know, over half a million dollars, that sort of thing. And the the business grew, and we were doing well. And you know, little by little, did you set a minimum though? Because it sounds like you've you've kept a a broad client base. Yeah, I I have, but I, um, you know, I I did for a while, Um, and. You know, I think the other thing that sometimes I second guessed was my intuition, uh, my my discernment, and uh, I think I'm pretty good at that. And I think I always have been, but I, again, I didn't have the confidence to apply it because some of the people at that time that had over half a million dollars were just jerks, you know. Mm. And I, I just don't do well with jerks. It's not worth the money, you know. Um, who was it, Nick Murray, that calls them pitas? Um, yeah. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And, and so, you know, looking at that and realizing, no, I, I really want to work with people that I really like. And I got into really three um, kind of niches, if you will, professional women, which is sort of a duh, um, teachers and educators, because everybody else in the family other than dad was an educator. And then we have a, you know, FedEx is uh home here. And so I had a lot of FedEx clients. And as they retired, of course, that was uh, very lucrative. Um, So little by little, as we grew, you know, we we hired a a client actually who began to deliver birthday gifts for us. And then um, we needed somebody to do more administrative stuff. And so over the next uh, 10 years or so, we grew to a group of about five of us. and then, and then the Great Recession hit, and oh wait, there's more mistakes to come. All right, so, so where, so as you get into financial crisis, Great Recession, so there's 
there's five of you. So I guess, do you recall just how, how big is the, like the business at this point of clients or assets or revenue? You know, I think it was in the uh, 60, 70 range, something like that. 60 or 70 million under mm -hmm. management. Yeah. Okay. Um, Because I remember, I I think I kept up with it daily, like a ninny. Um, But, you know, that there was a lot of emphasis on that in the, in the coaching program. But anyway, so I think it, it was one afternoon and, and I'm um, about to make uh, write checks because that was back when we wrote them and signed them. And um, I'm finding myself, this is probably 2010, 11. And, you know, we've lost 30 or 40% of our income because the market's gone down 30 or 40%. And most of our income of, you know, 95% probably is tied to assets under management right. and fees. So, um, I'm I'm going to be five thousand dollars short on payroll, and it's because Michael, I had not taken my own advice. I had no budget uh, for me or for the company. I had no savings because I'm single. I'm a CFP. What do I need a budget for? What an idiot! Anyway, so I'm lamenting this fact with my best friend that afternoon while we're walking, and she says, "You know, Nan, don't worry. Uh, my husband and I can cover you." So they give me $5,000 and I make payroll. And the next morning I come into work and the first person I see is this best friend because she worked with me. In fact, she was my receptionist. So sobering, my receptionist is keeping my financial planning firm afloat because I've been an idiot. And so I... I, (laughs) So just that kind of leverage of the firm, like, you know, advisory firms classically, you know, at at a stable point can run 25 to 30% profit margins. Uh, So, you know, you get a, you get a 30% market downturn and like that basically goes to zero or very slightly negative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I just realized um, that I was completely unaware and so a, a guy that was working with me at that point, now my business partner, had been teaching uh, Dave Ramsey's financial piece at his church for 10 or 15 years. And I went into his office and I said, okay, I give up. Tell me what to read. So he suggested Total Money Makeover by Dave. And as previously mentioned, I'm uh, learning disabled, so I'm not a great reader, but I could listen to it, uh, which is another reason I love you. But I, um, so I listened to the book about five times and just heard myself in every paragraph. I'm like, oh, this is so painful. So I'm like, okay, uh, pride cometh. It's time for you to, you know, humble yourself and do what needs to be done. And so the first baby step that uh, Ramsey talks about is save $1,000. I don't even have $1,000 saved. Now, granted, I have a ton of equity in the building that I own. I have a ton of money in retirement accounts, but nothing liquid. So I, I sold my treadmill because I can hang my clothes in the closet and, you know, eventually got to a thousand bucks and then just walked through the rest of the steps until I had paid all my debt off, which took about seven years. But in the meantime, I ordered 200 copies of Total Money Makeover and started sitting down with all my clients to say, do you know what you're spending? And that first year, uh, I asked the first hundred clients I met with, do you know? And only five of them did. And I thought, what kind of financial advisor are you? 
you know, I mean, we give great investment advice, but it's your, it's a plan. So, you know, I got on a budget, obviously, or cash flow plan, and I, you know, got the business all squared away. Um, but we completely changed our practice at that point. So just help me understand, though, that it sounds like there were two pieces of this running in parallel for you as a challenge. Part of it was market downturn mm-hmm. eviscerates uh, profitability, right? You can get to you know, a 20 to 30% downturn, can can pull revenue down by 20 to 30%, but can pull profits down by 100% because right. – all the top line loss goes to the bottom line since staff expect their their, their salaries either way. <laughs> yeah. So so you got to the like I'm running a little bit short on on payroll, but mm-hmm. then it sounds like at the same time the the bigger issue was like the personal household upkeep of just being able to pay your personal bills while profits got crushed in the financial crisis. Like that was actually the bigger issue that tied to this that that created debt that took seven years to pay off. Yeah, exactly. And and I think um, you know when you when you for the first time really look at what you're spending, it's very nauseating. You're like, how much money does one single woman need to spend okay. on entertainment? And evidently, mm-hmm. it's quite a bit. And and also the you know the the behavior of going to the, inviting people over. Okay. I'm inviting you and all your friends over and you all say yes. And you all say, uh, Hey, what can we bring? And I say nothing. And then I go to the grocery store and I spend $200 on beer and wine and cheese and all that stuff. And y'all come over and you forage and everything's gone and you leave and I get mad at you. You know, Mm-hmm. Um, you offered. I didn't take you up on it. And so some of it was changing um, my, not some of it, a lot of it was changing my behavior and recognizing why I was doing what I was doing. Um, and that uh, that changed my life too. Uh, because you, you know, you realize this, this behavior is, is hurting you. And you're, every time you go out with friends, you pick up the check. For what reason? Do you want them to think more of you or you want to be magnanimous or what, what's the deal here? Because you need to stop it because you're, you're hemorrhaging money, you know? So um, anyway, and I think also the, the willingness to give up whatever needed to be given up. I had just bought the house of my dreams and thought, you know, hey, God, is this something you want me to get rid of? And I love football, but do I need to cancel cable and all that? And and I think, you know, to be willing to do all that. Um, and and then, I, I th- and I, you know, now if I get to speak to advisors, I also, I just want them to look at, do you know? Do you know what you're spending? And, and that's when I changed also the, the planning practice because really the most important number in anyone's plan, not GDP, not your investment return, it's what are you spending and are you controlling it? Because that's the key. You can't control, hey, how much income am I going to make or what's the market going to do? But you can control what you're spending. So it's, you know, it's been a, a long road, but a good one. Interesting. Because I'm always struck that. You just when I talk to a lot of advisors that are making decisions around, you know, like, do I want to grow more? Do I want to invest more into the business? Just what, what, you know, what am I, what am I doing with the economics of the business? And I'll mm-hmm. often get conversations that amount to, well, I, I, 
uh, like I'd like to grow more, but there's no dollars left to be able to invest in a growth in the business. Mm-hmm. I'll say like, well, why not? Like, what's the like what's the profitability of the business? Like, why well, we run pretty good profit margins? Like, we we have twenty to thirty percent profit margins. Like, well. Okay, then why isn't there any money to like reinvest? <laughs> like you just said, there's twenty or thirty percent profit margins, and and what it comes down to very quickly is yes, but my personal lifestyle mm-hmm. absorbs a hundred percent of the remaining profits, right? You know, like right. we we uh, you know the meetings expand to fill the space in which they're allotted, and lifestyles mm-hmm. expand to fill the profit distributions to which they're allotted. So if you don't right. If you're not if you're not conscious about that, it's it's you know we as advisors often get a pretty significant lifestyle inflation creep of our of our own when uh-huh. when you hit those I call it like the the mid career years kind of for a lot of advisors it's somewhere in the five to fifteen years in where you finally get past those horrible horrible early years and the right. money gets good and then like uh-huh. the money gets pretty good yeah <laughs> and, very good right and you and you and you start adjusting and, and ratcheting up lifestyle, like not that it's bad to enjoy your dollars if you want to enjoy your dollars, but you know, we create sometimes these dependencies where our lifestyle is dependent now on a certain non-trivial amount of cash flow coming mm-hmm. out of the business. Like we don't we don't run our lifestyles like we're on a salary. We run our lifestyles like every free dollar of cash flow from the business is our lifestyle spending. Right. And then when you get market volatility, which translates into business and revenue, especially profit volatility, because again, you got to pay your staff no matter what. So mm-hmm. top line revenue decrease falls straight to the bottom line. We can suddenly end up in these worlds where you know the business is fine in a market pullback, but I'm I'm in crisis. Like my my household spending mm-hmm. yeah. is is in crisis. And, you know, and I think a lot of times that's because we're not paying attention or we're trying to keep up with the Jones. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of, I don't know if there's pressure, but I think many of us say, well, I need to drive this car because it communicates I'm successful or wear this watch or, you know, whatever. Well, um, I feel like it, there's a lot of that in our- I think it is. I think there in, is. In, in, our, in our world, right? I mean- Mm-hmm. You know, some some of that, you know, some of that I think is, you know, just we as advisors we do tend to be like goal oriented, achievement oriented people. So you know, we tend to set successive goalposts that get further up for ourselves over time. So like right. I always have to ratchet the ratchet the you know the visible lifestyle a little bit higher for for the public perception of it. I would argue there's also a piece that I think maybe has some like just real clients business validity of yeah it 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 can feel challenging to try to demonstrate that you're a quote credible financial advisor if it doesn't look like you're making a certain level of income or dollars to be perceived as a credible financial advisor and right. i can i can make the case on in yeah. in theory of why that shouldn't matter at all but mm-hmm. For some advisors, it really does. For some client situations, frankly, it, it probably does. There are mm-hmm. clients, right or wrong, that do judge their advisors in that way. Right. You can decide you don't want to work with them, but there there are clients that look at it that way as well. Sure. So I I get that. You know, there's both the the general lifestyle creep. There's the I want to show that I'm successful as a financial advisor, so I'm I'm going to show it visibly in what I wear and what I drive usually and where I live usually is mm-hmm. the big ones. Right. Right. Um, 
And then there's the I'm I'm trying to show I'm credible to clients and prospects and you know how how fancy of a car and nice of an office do you need to have in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know and, and we're the only ones that can really judge but I I think when when I paid off my house it made such a big difference in my spending because now you know I know where I am and how I am. And yeah, I have a nice car, I have a nice house, I have a nice watch, but I I don't need four houses. And I'm comfortable in my own skin, as mentioned, probably for the first time in, you know, 30 years, but I don't have anything to prove to anybody. But I think that they're they're an off there's some insecurity, I think, sometimes with advisors and and they really do feel like they need to, you know, up their uh, ownership of stuff uh, to prove that they're value. So help us understand more like how this, how this plays out with the, with the team. I understand like, you know, you're, you're now listening to Dave Ramsey's total money makeover and, and you kind of having your, your moment with personal household budgeting and, mm-hmm. and, and debt uh, while going through the stress of making payroll in the business. So I understand the changes that started to happen on the personal side around, around changing spending and making decisions. Did it change anything on the business end? I mean, like, did did you have to lay anyone off? Did you get to the point of, oh, I don't really want to hire any more people because this payroll thing sucks. I'm not going to make it <laughs> than, um, than it needs to be. Like, did did it show up like that in the business end? No, that's interesting. I didn't have to lay anybody off. Uh, I think in part because there were so many expenses that I could cut personally and in the business that we began to, you know, break even a whole lot faster. And in fact, even save money. And then um, I was so uh, convicted about all the all that I had been learning and thinking, you know, if if a CFP can get in this kind of trouble than anybody can. I mean, I'm like a naval officer that can't swim, you know, it's just crazy. So uh, I went, uh, applied with the Ramsey Solution folks and said, hey, how about making me a ELP? Now it's a SmartVestor Pro. And they did, which meant, you know, folks go to Dave's website and uh, they need help in Memphis and they may see my name and they may call. Um, Well, we started getting a lot of referrals a lot of referrals, like five a week. And, you know, two to three of those would become clients. So there were a couple years where we were getting a hundred new clients a year. Now, again, you know, the 80-20 rule certainly applied. Um, 80% of the folks made up 20% of our income and vice versa. But there are an awful lot of people that uh, subscribe to Dave's philosophy who have a ton of money. And if clients are debt-free, they also have a ton of, of cash flow. Yeah. Um, so I, it was fun for me to look back. In, in 2010, we had five uh, team members. By 2018, we had nine. Um, and then we, we've picked up uh, since then. We've added quite a few. And that, now we're at 22. Um, and most of it has Wait, been what, because, what was that know, path? So you, you had five team members coming through the the tough period. You were at right. do you say nine at nine team members by twenty eighteen? Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then jumped up to twenty two now, five years later. Yeah. So we would add uh looks like three to five a year until we got to twenty two. And um two or three years ago, 
uh, we had three advisors who were smart investor pros. So that's really a lot of the growth was because we just, you know, I think most advisors can't really handle more than 100, 150 clients. Uh, well, in my opinion, um, I couldn't. I don't know what everybody else can do, but um, that's when we, you know, I knew I needed to start hiring some help and. We've never hired a licensed person. We've always hired folks that that we trained that wanted to be an advisor that got licensed under us. Um, and for us, that's just how it's worked up till now. That could change in the future. So um, had uh, three advisors until about three years ago. Uh, and then we did hire a gal who was a CPA, but she came here to get her license um, and now has become a CFP. So she's uh, quite educated and has been fantastic. But um, so the, the practice just grew. And, and I know just from the numbers and what other people say that we, you know, our average client is only has $330,000, but, you know, our top 50 have a truckload of money. Um, they're, you know, each over $2 million. And so uh, I, I just, I like the idea that we'll help anybody. Recently, for those folks that we've tried to help and have been unresponsive, we've started selling some of our lower book to LPL because they'll buy it. Um, and that's been some way for us to, you know, keep some weight off of our advisors. Wait, so how does that work? L LPL will will buy a portion of your uh, client base like directly, you know, yeah. like they buy in the home office. So how do, how does that work? Yeah, they have, I think they've hired, I don't know, 25, 30 um, licensed folks, uh, many of whom are CFPs. And I think what LPL is trying to do is keep the money uh, in the family. So if they're people that we're not servicing, rather than making them house accounts, uh, they will buy, uh, if it's a, um, if it's an actively managed account, I think they'll pay you 1.5% uh, once. Uh, maybe that's true with brokerage too. Uh, but anyway, there's there's some ratio that they use and then uh, they're responsible for those clients. And they tell you that they're going to call them, you know, once a month or contact them once a month and do an annual review with them once a year. And these are people that, you know, we've, we've begged them to, to come in, to respond, yeah. to, to do whatever. And they just won't. So at some point you're like, I can't be responsible for these people. They're not gonna, you know, and, and maybe they win the lottery tomorrow, but um, regardless, I, I don't think that they're ever going to be all that great. And LPL said, Hey, we want them. So I'm like, great. Okay, here you go. And, and so from LPL's end, like, yeah, I guess the, so they'll pay you one one point five percent of the advisory account. I guess mm -hmm. nominally, if you charge one percent, it's one and a half times revenue. So you know it's a uh, it's a reasonable purchase rate. I guess paperwork is negligible because the how the account's already at LPL. So right, probably up up updated updated repapering for an advisory agreement or a broker of record change, and then like that's it. You're you're done. Yeah, we, we're done. We send a really nice letter to the people that we're um, sending to LPL. And um, we've only had one one person, we've only sold about mm, maybe 30 clients. Um, we've only had one person who begged to come back. Uh, so we, you know, LPL's like, yeah, 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 that's fine. You can keep her. Uh, so we did. And um, 
you know, if people want to work with us, we're, we're in, but if they're just going to be dead weight, we need to move along. So, so where's all the growth coming from just for that, that acceleration and growth rate? Is it continued to be SmartVestor Pro really driving a lot of activity in your, in your area? Or was that more like, that's what was going in like the mid 20 teens, but it's different in recent years? Yeah, I think that's really what got us started. And then um, most of our growth has been from referrals from existing clients, some of whom came to us through the SmartVestor Pro program. Um, We've noticed a slowdown in that in the last uh, 12 to 18 months. So we've lowered, we had two advisors on the plat or three advisors on the platform, and we've lowered that to two advisors uh, just to save some money. and you so, know we're going so to try smart, different things. Smart investor, it slowed down from smart investor over the past yes. over yep. the past year. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. It's so, still you know it still is more than paying for itself, and yeah. it's something that you know we believe in, and it's it's our philosophy, but uh, it's not inexpensive. So at some point you have to say, okay, well, it's, you know, hey, yeah. you know what, Michael? Now now I'm good with the yeah. budget, so I'm <laughs> I'm editing everything. So. Uh, so this kind of hiring, like just for a lot of advisory firms, like it's a lot of of hiring, right? As you said, mm-hmm. you, you you've been adding three to five people per year. You, you know, you were almost 30 years in the business to get from yourself to five. Mm-hmm. So like you're 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 adding almost as many people every year each year as you did in the first 30. Yeah, good point. So how does that change from just a hiring person? Like, how do you think about staffing and hiring and adding that many people and figuring out who to add? Yeah, we uh, we have a leadership team of four of us, and we read the book Traction about two and a half years ago and really adhere to the EOS system. And um, okay. basically just in, in mapping out and trying to determine – you know, who we need and when we need them. And uh, I think, I think we've been pretty, pretty spot on. And, you know, I mean, if you hire someone that you want to be an advisor now, it's going to take you two years, I think, to get them up to speed. Um, Just in the, in the training and the licensing, all that stuff, if they're not already licensed. And, and as we say around here and indoctrinating them in what our system is, what our culture is. Uh, so I, I think two years. And so you have, you do have to look out and determine, Hey, what are we going to need in two or three years? Um, so I think some of it has been due to projection and some of it's just been, Hey, we, we got to have a gal out front because everybody that we've hired out front has decided that they want to be promoted to something else. And we need need someone who really wants to sit in that chair. So, you know, some of it is just an urgent need and some of it is because of, of planning. And our hiring system is uh, very long um, and we we try to take all the time that we need because I, I should have clarified, we have hired all the people I mentioned, um, but in in all that time, we have lost four people, uh, two that we fired and two that have quit. So there have been even more um, than I 
told right, you right, about. Right. But anyway, um, and I'm I'm pleased with that too because there's nothing more miserable. You know, people are going to quit. I get that, but there's nothing more miserable than firing somebody. So we really want to be slow to hire uh, and quick to fire. Uh, so, so help me understand how hiring happens in your firm. It's like who who does it? Who's responsible? Who who does what in the hiring process to make sure you get the the right people on board? Sure. We uh, we determine that we need some position, and that comes from the leadership team. And then the first thing uh, we do is uh, pray about it, uh, determine who we think we're looking for, and narrow that down. And also, you know, narrow down if they take some of the personality tests that we use. How do we want them to come out? Um, so are they going to be the right fit? And then will they be a good cultural fit? And then we. Most of the people that we gather on the team uh, came from word of mouth, so we let folks know we don't advertise, um, we don't necessarily put it on Facebook, although we do on occasion. And, you know, we might get um, a few applicants and the first, uh, our integrator or the, the gal that is really the... Uh, person that manages the office, she will call them and we'll do a you know fly-by phone call to see how they sound, what they think, et cetera. Then if they if she gets the okay, they come in for a personal interview with her. If they get that okay, then they meet with one of the one of us partners. If we're still okay with them, then she's gonna he or she is going to be interviewed by uh, a couple of the folks that that she'll he or she will be doing their position um and if that's still good uh then the individual comes back in to meet some of the other team members so we probably have um seven folks or so that meet everybody um and if we still have a green light uh we ask them where they are in process with their finances just to um see, you know, how they handle their money, et cetera. And then we usually take, uh, we, no, we always take uh, them and their spouse to dinner with some of us and our spouses to see if any of the spouses have any red lights. Uh, we've had that happen once. Uh, one time, one of the husbands was like, this gal will not fit into your culture. So we didn't hire her. Um, and we, we feel good about doing that because so, you know, you're spending, spending, you know, eight hours a day or more with these people. Uh, so if any of the spouses have issues, um, we we just flag them. But again, that's only happened once. Um, and that's that's proven to be a pretty good system. Uh, it takes a while, uh, but it's uh, it's been it's been very how, uh, successful for us. How, how long does that process take? Just getting through, or like so, like initial call with your integrator. Then I think like interview with your integrator, interview with a partner, interview with the folks they'll be working with, mm -hmm. additional round of meetings with the team members, and then and then the dinner. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like how how long does that take to get through? Probably probably anywhere from four to eight weeks. A lot of it is just a matter of you know how quickly can we get this right. scheduled and and are they working someplace else? You know and how how often can they come in that kind of thing um i think the last two we hired took six weeks each so uh and 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 the folks that you're getting this is i think you said mostly like local network word of mouth you're not necessarily like 
know, listing on in indeed.com or LinkedIn or those kinds right. of hiring platforms? Yeah, we, we haven't ever had to do that. Um, we have hired a number of folks uh, that are clients. Uh, they've just been really strong administrative types or uh, one of, so my assistant um, was already a client. Uh, our integrator was already a client. Uh, one of our research specialists uh, I went to church with, that kind of stuff. So a lot of it is people that we already know. Um, and, you know, so far that's that's worked uh, very well. So how do you put the word out of that? I mean, just do you literally like send an email to client list? Hey, we're we're hiring for this position. If you or anybody in your network might be interested, please send them our direction. Yeah, we we target um, folks that we know that know a jillion people. So there are about 10 of our clients that um, mm-hmm. have been great resources for this kind of thing. And we send that to them. And also, you know, now we have 22 people on the team. So we give the description to everyone and say, here's who we're looking for. Do you know of anybody? Um, and, you know, again, so far that's, that's worked. Um, and we've always gotten, you know, a few applicants and we don't really want to talk to 60 people. So uh, some folks have not worked out and they're just not right for the position or just it's not the right timing or they don't want the right. money we're offering or whatever. But um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's gone, gone pretty well. And then you said there's some assessments you're using as well that you, you figure out both the job description is and, and how you want to see them show up on the assessments. So what, what assessments do you use to do that? Yeah, we've been using, um, we used Colby for a while, but I didn't really understand it. Um, I, I know several of my friends use it and, and are very successful, but we changed to DISC, uh, and that's that's something that's been very helpful for us. We're big Enneagram people, so we do that as well. And then recently, because of Pat Lencioni, we've started using the Working Genius quiz mm. uh, to determine what their Working Genius is, and that's just been uh, it has revolutionized uh, how we operate in the office and who does what. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I, I've been fascinated by it. Um, I've just uh, like ju- had just started reading the book myself and and gone through the assessment with uh, uh, with some of our our leadership teams. So I mm-hmm. guess if anyone's curious, like this is episode three hundred and twenty four. So if you go to kitsis dot com slash three two four, we'll actually have a link in the in the show notes to uh, to Patrick Lencioni's. Uh, he has both a book around this called, uh, I think, The Six Types of Working Genius, and then uh, I like an actual assessment tool you can mm-hmm. you can take to uh, to check it out. But i i've been I've been fascinated by, you know, I, I guess, to me, like how dis- disturbingly effective the system <laughs> is. Like, yeah. I, disturbing makes it sound more negative than it is, but just it's it's a very simple system, but it's 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 really good. Like the mm-hmm. essence of it just says. If you like, if you think about how a like a business comes together, just like how anything gets executed, how any project gets executed, like there's a series of stages. Like someone, someone just sees the potential of what it could do, of what it could be. Mm-hmm. Someone like turns it into an actionable idea and gets it started. Someone else like cuts through all the different ideas and figures out like this is the one we should do and not all the other ones. Then like someone rallies the team together to get them to act on it. Then someone supports all the team members and like manages them through to get it there. 
and then someone's like the results person that pulls everything across the finish line. So they, they've got these these six steps of of what happens, and the idea is if you look across those six steps, most people are really gifted in two, kind of deal with it for two, and have two that are really like negative or challenging or just don't fit their uh, their natural style. So like I went through, I was a, a, a wonder person. Because I like I see the ideas and opportunities and everything, and I'm a discernment person. I'm really good at like looking through all the different ideas and prioritizing them and say this is what we should do that matters the most, and this is just isn't probably going to go anywhere. Uh, and then I work with a um, uh, an, an integrator in our business, and her strengths are the last two. Like she's all mm-hmm. about supporting the team on execution and making sure they get to completion. It's like we're a great team. I right. spin up all the ideas. And she loves running with them. I get very tired managing people and uh, uh, and having a lot of direct reports. She thrives in direct reports and does not want to have to like come up with the next big idea for the business. I'm mm-hmm. Like, cool, I got that. You, yeah, you do you, I'll do me. So, right, right. So, so where do you fall on this? Like this dimension? Do you remember what your your working genius type are? I do. Um, first of all, that's one of the best summaries I've ever heard of uh, the six steps. So nicely done. I'm an inventor. So I'm the idea gal and I'm a discerner. Um, okay. And the, the last on my list is tenacity, which means uh, I'm not a finisher, which, mm-hmm. you know, you already know. I mean, we already knew you had wonder because part of wonder too is you're just naturally curious and you ask mm-hmm. a lot of questions and that's kind of what you do, you know, and you obviously yep. are exceptional at it. Um, but, I think it's just given, I think what, what's changed is it's just given so much energy to yeah. what we're all good at, uh, at least in our office. It's just been exceptional. And you're right. It's so simple. It's so simple. Well, and just to me, there's a power, right? I mean, you'd said it earlier in a way that I feel like it's used ne- at least negatively in some context. I think you'd said, I'm I'm a starter, not a finisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but that, like, that's literally the point in... Lencionia's system is like, yes, starter people are different than finisher people, and no mm-hmm. one's actually good at all six steps of of how a thing gets created, right? His whole six types are basically the six steps of how a again, like a thing comes into being, right? Do you right. you have you know, you you see the possibility, you have the idea of how to do it, you discern which one to pursue, you galvanize the team to get it going, you enable them to make it happen, then you've got the tenacity to see it through to the end. And mm-hmm. so the whole point is yeah, if you want to get things done, like you need people who can do all of those different things together on a team because that literally means there's someone to take it through each step of the uh, the process to get it to get it to the end. And and so to me, like it's it's powerful because what it what it says in in your context, right? When you live in the invention and discernment area, like I'm really good at seeing the ideas of what we can do and figure out which one is actionable. Mm-hmm. Great. Now I just need someone who's wonderful at enablement and tenacity in their system, like who loves to drive the team forward and get it to completion. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I, I think it's not only has it given me energy around my two uh, geniuses, but also a deep appreciation, like you were talking about your integrator, a very deep appreciation for those that have uh, enablement, uh, galvanizing, tenacity, all of those things. And uh, I think it just increases the respect in the office. And then uh, something else that you can do on his website is a team map. 
So it shows you what mm. everybody's uh, genius is, and you can see if you're lacking anything. Uh, that was very helpful. Or if there's a lot of pressure in in our case on the galvanizers, because there's only two of them, mm-hmm. you know. So we need to be sensitive, et cetera. So anyway, it's it's just absolutely. Uh, I mean, I I do think I'm addicted to personality tests, but uh, this has been very very helpful in the workplace, and frankly, with relationships too. Uh, I, I think it's it's interesting to find out what everybody is in the family, et cetera. And so then I guess in in that context right now it. It helps on the hiring end because you can look and say, okay, I, I, I need to hire a manager who's going to have a pretty big team of direct reports. Like you probably want someone who's really strong in enablement who mm-hmm. can, who can lift up that that team. You know, you you uh, want to hire someone in a in a strategic innovation role. Like, okay, I need all wonder and invention. Like, we'll exactly. figure, we'll put someone else around if it gets it done. Like, just go 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 think about the next big things. Right. Right. Uh, and and likewise for all the different pieces along the way, it's mm-hmm. it's um, it's powerful to see where where you might have gaps, or just to force you to think about what what skills do you really need on your team to 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 do the role that's being hired for. Yeah, exactly, spot on. So, do you literally like? It, does that become part of your internal I guess, jo- dot job description assessment? Like, we're hiring for this role, and like. We really need someone who's high in enablement, or at least they can't be low in enablement, or that's just not going to be a good fit. Yeah, we don't. I mean, internally, that's what we say. We don't advertise that to whoever, because, well, first of all, not any, very few people know about Working Genius. I think it's just hit the bookshelves. Yeah, no one would know what they are. Yeah, yeah, not yet. Um, But I I think it's going to take the world by storm. Um, But internally, we know who we're looking for. And it, it just, it's just helpful. You know, like with, with the example you just gave, if if someone's an administrator, they need to have enablement because they're going to be cleaning up a lot of stuff, you know, yep. and taking care of a lot of stuff. So you want someone that's excited to do those things. Yeah. Because again, to me, the, the strength around working genius and strengths finders and a lot of those models is uh, just it highlights people who are actually excited to do the thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Instead of the and, ones you're trying to drag along to do it. And, you know, going back to um, Enneagram, just as an example, or DISC, um, you know, if if you have, we have one uh, eight on the Enneagram chart, which is someone who's very forthright and opinionated and, you know, kind of a driver type. Uh, you can't have too many of those on your team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the same with an Enneagram 4, that they're they're magnificent, brilliant, creative, but they're also sometimes practically bipolar. And that's, fortunately for us right now, we have none of those on our team. Uh, it's the, you know, they're, they're dramatic and, again, incredibly gifted. But I think that's been helpful, too, to discern yeah. who's going to be a good fit and who's not. Yeah, as, as the... Um as one of only two Enneagram eights on our team, <laughs> I, have a, I have a lot of appreciation for that. Oh, I'm glad I pointed that out. Okay, great. Yes, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> so, so as you look back on this journey of the the business growing and evolving, like what's what surprised you the most in this journey of building building your own advisory business? Well, I think I I thought. I, my perfect position was always going to be under the person that was in charge. I thought I was a good, you know, second in command kind of person. And so when I was put in the, nope, it's your business and you got to run it. And I did it. And turns out I was pretty good at it. 
Um, I think that's been a big surprise. It's been a big surprise, as you pointed out earlier, that it took me um, 30 years to really get to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to start really telling myself the truth. And, you know, some of that is, um, that's what therapy's for. And I can't encourage advisors to get into therapy enough because I'm all for it. And medication is really a good thing. Um, but I also think that the the season's, have have changed a little bit that I do enjoy working with clients, but not as I once did. And what I really enjoy doing now is coaching uh, team members to meet their dreams and help them grow as advisors or admins or whatever else they want to be and really give people a place where they can work and have purpose and be lifers. That's what we're looking for here. Uh, I'm a lifer. I think we attract lifers and um, I don't ever see retiring, Michael. I, I think I get, I have so much energy coming into work and I don't need to be working. I, I could have quit two years ago, but um, I don't want to. It's, it's, I think there was a point where it was all about the money and then that changed and it was never about the money. And I think getting to that point has been uh, a wonderful point, a wonderful point in my life. Um, and just knowing that I'm impacting people's lives is, um, it's just incredible. Uh, we're, we're very blessed. So what, what led to this whole, like, I, I thought my perfect position was to be second in command until I, I, I landed in first in command and had to deal with it. Is that an extension of the, uh, you know, I, I thought I wasn't analytical and technical enough that I, I, I couldn't be the business owner or something yeah, else that was, I that think, was limiting that for you? Yeah, I think, um, I think some of it was that. I think um, there, was some, there was some things that happened when uh, I was considerably younger that really shook my confidence. Um, we'll just call it people taking advantage of me um, in a pretty horrible way. And I think that sets you back emotionally and psychologically, and uh, you feel less than uh, for a good long while. I certainly did. Um, but, you know, my parents always made me feel like I could be president if I wanted to be, that I could do anything. I was capable of anything. Uh, they were great at that. And um, I think. Uh, I, I had a lot of encouragement to to do it. And again, I knew what I was good at and I can build a team. Uh, and I think leaning into that and leaning into relationships um, really helped. Uh, I, think, I think I thought I'd be best uh, second in command because I didn't have the confidence to be in command. But I do now. So what was the low point on this career journey for you? Oh gosh, Michael, there have been so many. Um, I think failing uh, all those tests uh, was very, very low. Uh, I think the the Great Recession was a double low. One, because I felt personally responsible for all those people that lost all that money. Of course, I wasn't, um, but they are very tough dis- you know, discussions to have. Uh, you've lost 30% and it doesn't look like your kid can go to Vanderbilt or, you know, whatever. So, um, so not just the, the impact on like your personal balance sheet and the making payroll dynamics, but just mm-hmm. sitting across from one client after another all the way through to explain to them how, how much they were down. Yeah. 
Uh, and, and it's interesting, the disconnect. I think sometimes people watch and read the news and hear the market's gone down, but they don't really think it's affected them. I, I'm not sure what, what that's about, but... Um, you know, and it was, it was very, those are very difficult conversations and we lost some clients as a result, but we gained a lot of clients as a result. And, you know, last year was um, a challenging year and people lost a lot of money, but it's a different conversation now. You know, you're, you're, you know, the money that you have invested is not in there for tomorrow. It's in there for 30 years from now, 10 years from now. Um, And I know what happens. I just don't know when it's going to happen, but the market's coming back. Um, And, you know, I think to to have that experience and to be able to look across the table and say, you know what, everything you own in your portfolio, so do I. I'm never going to put you in anything that I don't already own. And I think that's something that every advisor ought to be saying um, and doing because, you know, we don't, I don't think we have any business putting people in something that we don't use or trust. I mean, there's some exceptions to that, but um, I think that's a really important thing to be able to say. So what else do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you 20 plus years ago when you, you did the LPL transition and, and stood up your own firm for the first time? You're, you're okay and you're going to be okay. And um, who you are is enough. In fact, it's great. And um, you, you know, you, you deal with people the way you want to be dealt with um, and, and you're going to succeed. And, and as you know, it is not hard to make business, to make money in this business. And it's not hard to make a lot of money in business. I have two words for you, recurring revenue. Uh, so powerful, so very powerful. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's all about, um, all about confidence. It's all about trusting yourself um, and surrounding yourself with incredible people Um and and really, if if you don't love what you're doing, let's let's find you something else to do, uh, because this is a magnificent career. Uh, certainly has its challenges, but I I can't imagine doing anything else. And any other advice you would give younger, newer advisors looking to get started in the industry today? I, I think if if you love it, never quit. Uh, there's going to be setbacks, and you know mine were tests and foolishness and not being aware um, markets are always going to be there. But if you think this is what you've been called to and you want to be doing, um, you're going to be, somebody told me early on, um, may have been John Savage, that you're going to be uh, underpaid for the first five years and then overpaid every year thereafter. I think mine was more like seven or eight years, but uh, that's certainly true. It's certainly true, but those first, you know, five, seven years are not easy. If it were easy, everybody would be doing it, but it's not because, you know, I mean, you of all people know, you have to be a a physician and a psychiatrist and a coach and a, you know, a, a research analyst and and a communicator. You have to be like 17 different things to clients and it's difficult and you're going to be strong at some of the things and not so strong at other things, but uh, it is, it's just a remarkable career and we get to help people change their lives and their family trees and reach their goals and, and, you know, see their dreams come. And, and it's just such a powerful thing because if we can help people get in a better relationship with their money, baby, we can, you know, we can set the world on fire. And I think that's what we're doing. So what comes next for you? 
Well, I just uh, recently became a certified dream manager. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, uh, but no, it's no. What is that one? It's a very good. It's called Dream Manager, and it's the story about um, someone who owns a, a janitorial service, and they have four hundred percent turnover. And so the boss goes to the second in command and says, "I need you to find out, you know, how we can stop this. Pay the people more, or whatever." And second in command says. I, I don't think that's it. I think it's something else. I'm going to, <laughs> hey, here's a lightning bolt. I'm going to ask the employees what what it is. And so okay. he surveys everybody. And um, one of the biggest issues was transportation. They couldn't get to work. So once they fixed, fixed that, um, turnover reduced to 200%, still horrible. So anyway, it's a, the, the story goes on and it's all about how he asked people uh, their their team what they needed and began to um, ask them what their dreams were and that was inspiring for all of them as he um, you know was able to basically coach them in their dreams and so the challenge in the book is write down a hundred dreams and uh, it took me about three months. A hundred. A hundred, yeah. That's so, a lot. I mean, it is a lot. Know, I mean, come up with two or three, I can do that quickly. Like, oh, come yeah. up with a hundred is quite difficult. It, it was, uh, and, and it continues to be. But, I mean, some of them can be uh, as simple as, I really would like uh, a front yard full of Bermuda grass, you know, or I really would like my dog to sit when I tell her to. Um, but some of them are deeper than that. I really want a strong relationship with my great niece and great nephew. They're four and six. That's very important to me. It's two different dreams. Well, by writing them down, just like when you do goals, you, by writing them down, you, you know, it, you're making a commitment and you're much more likely to achieve them. And I think the difference to me between goals and dreams is when, when I have goals, I just feel like um, I'm driving myself, sometimes mercilessly. Sometimes it feels like self-abuse. But a dream is just something that draws you, something that you would love mm. to have happen, something you've thought about a million times, but you've never written it down. So they, of course, have a program and they have a certification. And of course, there's a cost. And so I got certified to do that. And I'm doing that with two groups in my office right now, uh, just walking them through that. And it's just been uh, so fun uh, to see, you know, one of the gals wants to have a baby. She just got pregnant. One of the guys wants to have his teeth straightened. He just got braces. Uh, one of the gals wanted uh, to redo the upstairs bedroom, you know, things like that. And then one of the gals said, my husband and I've been wanting to go to Paris uh, forever and they've booked their trip. So I think it's a, a writing down, it's a thinking about it, um, and really pursuing those dreams. It's it's just been a lot of fun. So is the context, I guess, more team oriented? Like this, this is about developing your team, not necessarily clients getting to their their dreams. Not yet. Um, I mean, we're thinking about doing a workshop on it for clients. Um, this is my first thing out of the gate that I'm kind of practicing on mm -hmm. the team. They've been very gracious uh, about that. <laughs> but um, I, I just think there's a lot of merit to that. So I, I want to, uh, back to your original question, what, what's next? I want to continue to pursue that. I want to continue to be the visionary in our firm and to, to coach um, 
uh, our team here. I'd like to do more speaking. I'd, I'd love to do some writing. Uh, we'll see if, if that uh, comes about or not. But mom lived to 95 um, and was in pretty good health until she went to heaven. And so I think I'll be around for a while. Uh, and I don't really, like I said, anticipate quitting anytime soon because I, I love all the stuff I'm getting to do here. I love it. Thank you. So, so as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success, and and one of the themes is just the the word success means very different things to different people. And so you've you know built what anyone would objectively call very successful advisory business with uh, hundreds of millions of assets and 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 twenty two people and a wonderful dog. So the 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 business is in a great place now. How do you define success for yourself at this point? I I think. Um... I think being able to uh, pass all this on to others, uh, to see others be successful as well, um, meaning to have financial independence. Um, I am financially independent. I consider that uh, a definition of success. But more than that, I think um, sometimes um, leadership is lacking in our country. And so success to me is to to be a leader, to be somebody who is uh, a positive influence and who values other people on a consistent basis, um, that that is a, a big uh, success definition for me. Well, I can see then why you're continuing to lean in further to the the hiring and the management and the scaling and the and the dream management. Thank you. I, I just think that you've done such a uh, fantastic job. And I, I just love the fact that you know what your mission is, you know what your passion is, and you're all over it. And your website and your influence is just remarkable. And I, I just appreciate everything that, that you have done and you are doing. And you obviously have a fantastic team because I've gotten to visit with them and awesome. uh, really, really nicely done. Well, I appreciate that as well. Thank you so much, Nancy, for joining us on the- Thank you. Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It's been a treat. Likewise. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.